Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. Just a reminder that uh, next week starts daylight savings time, so be sure to put those clocks forward an hour and to uh, maybe not stay up quite as late on a Saturday. But you, it's uh, that time of year, so looking forward to uh, what the next season holds and looking forward to hopefully getting to meet together in person hopefully in a couple of weeks, so we'll see. But uh, it's a pleasure to speak God's Word and for you to be tuning in is a great blessing. So may the Lord continue to guide you and strengthen you and encourage you as we continue this story, this passage in Job. So we're in Job chapter 7. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Job. Thank you for the way that you used his life to bring encouragement to others and how through his suffering, we can see your mercy and compassion made manifest. And thank you, Lord, that we are not strangers to your compassion and love and mercy because you have uh, showered it upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you that he is Lord. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that we can come to you at all times in, in need to make our requests known to you, that we can rest upon your promises and your goodness and Thank you that your love never fails, that nothing can separate us from your love, and your plans for us are great. And bring us to a place, Lord, of humility and submission before you to receive both good and evil from your hand, knowing that you are good and you are a redeemer. So we give this time to you, Lord, and we, we really offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you, for that is our reasonable service, and you are our awesome king in Jesus' name. Amen. When things go wrong and seem to keep going wrong, it is easy to feel hopeless or perhaps feelings of despair. We can have cheerful optimism, but it can degrade into feeling like life is futility, frustrating, or hopeless. And despair has a way of creeping from one area in, of your life into another. Like you fail to land that job or get the promotion, so you start feeling as a failure as a husband, or you start feeling as... in you know, as a failure, as a Christian. Feelings of hopelessness, they can really, if we allow those to remain unchecked, it can deceive us to believe the lie that the future offers no hope when God is our hope. It's sad. It's not surprising, though, when people in this world despair and they're filled with hopelessness when the diagnosis is terminal when pain is excruciating or prolonged, or when your hopes are delayed again and again, and the sorrow is overwhelming. If Paul and the apostles despaired of life, who had the sure hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, we can also fall into a pitfall of despair. We can be brought down by cares and trials and difficulties. Now, it may not be rational or right to despair in the midst of trials, but it's real. We do have those feelings at times. I like what Webster said in the 1828 dictionary, never despair of God's blessings here or his reward hereafter. How we feel and what we see is not as powerful and real as all God says and does, who he is and how good he is. And may our difficulties never blind us to that truth. Job was a righteous man. He willingly received good and evil from the hand of God. God had blessed him with health and prosperity and riches and 
family, but suddenly took it all away. Instead of cursing God, as Satan said that he would, Job held fast to his integrity and worshiped God. He blessed the name of the Lord. He was struck with these burning, itching boils that he scraped with a, a piece of a pot. And he was visited by three friends who sat seven days with him in silence because they saw his grief was great. Job, he cursed the day of his birth and Eliphaz in response uh, suggested that Job could be responsible for the things that he was suffering, assuming that God was judging Job for his sin. Of course, we know that it was because Job was a righteous man God allowed him to suffer, not because he had sinned in a particular way. And after Eliphaz finished speaking, Job, he lamented his friend's lack of sympathy. He rebuffed the assumption that he had sinned without any evidence. There was no evidence that Job had sinned. They weren't able to bring a charge against him because he was blameless and upright. Grief had not deprived Job of knowing what was right from wrong. And our text begins as Job continues to express his feelings of hopelessness without comfort. Job 7, starting in verse 1. Is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hired man? Like a servant who earnestly desires the shade, and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages, so I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be ended? For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust, my skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Job compared his present state as one of hard service. This is a term that's used to denote military service. Enlisted soldiers, they don't have the choice of where they will be deployed or how long their deployment will be for. How long they'll have to be away from the comforts of family and home and the I guess the rest that we have of being around what's familiar, they have to take what's allotted to them. They must embrace what has been appointed for them by those in command. A worker who's paid by the day was ob obligated to do whatever his uh, boss that day was going to command him to do. Like if it was to plow, well, he would have to plow. If it was to shear the sheep, well, he'd have to shear the sheep. And there were some jobs that were preferable and others that were like, ah, it's going to be a tough day. But they could always look forward to that evening, like when the work is over, they could go home and relax and put up their feet. Life for Job was wearisome. It was like ongoing combat. It was like fighting in the trenches with no end. It was like a brutal shift at work that just dragged on and on and on. A servant working in the hot sun looked forward to that break in the shade or eating lunch or getting paid at the end of the day. But Job, it just kept going day after day. He was stuck in that situation 24 hours a day, seven days a week without respite. And he wasn't just suffering for a day, but for months. He says, months of weariness have been appointed for me. Like, I try to sleep at night, but I can't even sleep. I get tired of trying to sleep. So he's weary. He's exhausted. He's in pain. Day and night, that same torturous cycle was repeated again and again. Emotionally, Job was spent. He, had, he was mourning the loss of his 10 children, his servants that he loved, the affection of his wife, the support of his friends. We're not told exactly what skin condition Job suffered from, but it was incurable. It was painful. 
His cracked, broken skin, it attracted flies, which laid eggs that bred worms that were eating his dead skin. He just felt hopeless with this untreatable illness. I can just see him sitting there, not even bothering to wave the flies away because he's just so tired. He's so over it. He's done. He's spent. He's hurting. And he's like, my days, they're swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Now, I'm not a weaver, and I don't know what kind of looms that exist in that day, but what I do know is that when a loom is set up with the warp threads, those are the vertical threads in fabric, weaving is repetitive. And if you've ever seen someone use a loom, it's like they can, they're so expert at doing this movement of weaving the threads across and pushing it down that you really, I need to slow down the video to see what's actually happening here. What is that machine doing? And what, like there's a lot happening quickly and it's very repetitive. String after string, thread after thread is laid on top of another. And he's like, this is like my days. It's just day after day after day after day. One on top of another. Days of misery, days of weariness, days of hopelessness. And things are not getting better. And I can't see what good could come from it. And it's like, I'm surviving day after day. And I don't even have a quality rug or linen shirt to show for my trouble. All I have is festering wounds, sleepless nights, sun without shade, work without pay, fighting a losing battle with no chance of winning. That's how he's feeling right now. Continuing in verse seven. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. Job's suffering dragged on. He says, my life is a breath. It's like a cloud that disappears. My eye will never again see good. He lamented his life, brief in light of eternity, that he was spending his life in suffering, that he would vanish in a grave, that he would be forgotten. And he's saying, people who look at me now, they're going to forget me. My place won't even remember me anymore. Now, the irony is that God overruled what Job felt at the time. He's like, I'm going to be forgotten. Yet here we are thousands of years later, reading the book of Job, reading his words and considering what he went through. It's like God retained the words of Job so that he could make a rebuttal with Job, against Job's feelings with his sovereignty. And his goodness. And I believe Job at the time felt sincerely what he said. That what he said was true. And from a human vantage point, I can totally understand. I mean, as much as I can. I've never gone through what Job went through. God looked upon Job. And that's the awesome thing. Job couldn't see God doing anything good. But good God... The good God looked upon Job and for his good to remember him. God had not forgotten him. Job's permanent place was not in Ur. It was in heaven, in the presence of the father. And God would bring him before him with exceeding joy because of his faith in God. And when we are sick, when we are exhausted, when we are overwhelmed, we can think and say things which later prove untrue. We've said, I can't imagine 
recovering from this. And yet the Lord is gracious. He's compassionate and merciful. We can feel like everything is against us when God is for us. Remember when Jacob was brought report that Benjamin needed to go to the the ruler in Egypt? And he's like, all these things are against me. Not understanding, not realizing that he was going to be reunited with his brother, Joseph, who was that ruler in Egypt. And that Jacob would also be reunited with his son. And that God would preserve their whole family and the world from that famine by Joseph being there. God was for him. Just didn't see it at the time. God stands ready to save. Continuing in Job 7 verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? When I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint. Then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone for my days are but a breath. Job had this urgency to express himself because he did not have long to live. He believed like, I, I don't know even how I'm surviving right now. And really it was God's grace that kept him alive. Uh, and, and the bitterness of his soul found relief in speaking, though it didn't change his circumstances. There was this temporary relief to vent about them. And he makes his complaint to God. He's like, I haven't been unruly like the sea that you've put boundaries around or like a sea serpent that's targeted uh, because it poses a risk or a danger to humans that you would hem it in and, and seek to destroy it. Like it makes sense to shackle the violent criminal, but what have I done to deserve this? Why have I been imprisoned? Job thought in torment and fettered with illness. He looked for comfort in his bed, but he's like, if I do manage to fall asleep, it's like I have these horrible nightmares and these thoughts that like, I would rather be strangled to death than have to keep on living day after day like this. And eternal life seems more a curse than a blessing if this is what life is going to be life. To continue forever with this mental and physical state, it would be daunting. As much as Job needed health, he wanted to be left alone. And that's an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? He needed help. He wanted help. But at the same time, he was like, just go away. Leave me alone. And he really needed the Lord at that time. People who heard Job's cries, people who looked at him and their eyes sprung open and they saw his boils and the, the maggots, they, they could tell this man is not okay. He is not fine. He is wrecked. The man who was once the greatest of all the men in the East, he had lost his family, his health, his money. He was deathly ill. Nobody but his closest friends came to him. And when they did, they were not supportive to just listen to him. You don't need to experience all that Job did to suffer like he did. It was a few weeks ago with our you okay day. It reminds us how people can look perfectly happy who seem to be going well on the outside, but they're really suffering and they're hurting on the inside. They can have mental health struggles. It's like behind that smile, they can feel like they're dying inside and starting a conversation with someone could be a, a way for them to express how they're feeling and to find support and help they need. 
People, genuine followers of Jesus, have considered suicide. They have felt hopeless. They have despaired of life. Job's friends did well to visit him and to speak with him, but they listened to respond rather than to understand how he felt. It's like they wanted to correct him. They wanted to correct his feelings where I think a lot of us would have clammed up if we were Job. If we were getting that kind of response, when we shared our heart, we told how we were feeling and just to be corrected and and said, well, Job, you've obviously sinned in some way. You need to repent. Job, feeling at the end of his rope, was like, well, I'm desperate. My life is about over, so here it is. I'm just going to continue being vulnerable. I'm going to continue to speak the truth about how I'm feeling right now. And it's really a good example to us that it's not weakness to admit that you're struggling. As valuable as Job's conversation with his friends is for us to read and consider, it was when God spoke towards the end of the book that the light really shone through and ministered to Job and his friends. So God is the one to whom we look for this comfort and peace and help. He looked for help and comfort from his friends, but they proved to be like a a spring that had dried up, right? We talked about that last week. They were like a dry riverbed that couldn't supply any refreshment for him. I encourage everyone, reach out to others. If you're struggling, if you're facing a mental health battle, to tell people in addition to God, rather than stew in bitterness and feel hopeless. Pray to the Lord. Talk with your GP, your family, your friends. Refuse to be ashamed for admitting that you are suffering or struggling. See, the Lord knows how we feel, and He is able to help. There is, He is good, even In Job's situation, where we look at it and we say, how could good come from this? Well, stick around and you will see. Job 7, verse 17. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long? Will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? so that I am a burden to myself. Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. Because Job's affliction was persistent and continual, he felt like he was being relentlessly bullied. He felt like a kid at school who was minding his own business wonders why, like, why why am I the one being singled out? Why am I the one who's being picked on? I remember thinking in year eight of a a classroom bully who targeted me a bit. Like, don't you have anything better to do than to give me a hard time? Like, is, is this really fun for you? It's not fun for me. And there's nothing that I'm doing that should make it fun for you. But why? Like, what's the point of this? And in my experience, which was nothing compared to Job and to some others have faced, it's like, I had God to turn to for help and for protection. Job saw God as the perpetrator of his pains. So the one to whom help would come from, from whom help would come, that's the one who was doing this to Job. And so Job felt just overwhelmed by like the one who's been, who's my help. He's the one who is allowing me to suffer. He is allowing me to be afflicted. He's like, I don't even have the chance to catch my breath or swallow my spit before a next wave of affliction comes. 
The one who was used to helping other people bear burdens, Job, had become a burden to himself. And it was hard. It was difficult. And he wondered, if I'm suffering for sins, why doesn't God just destroy me? Or when I've repented, why doesn't he forgive me? Like it's nothing to God. I am under him. He is greater than all. And it's nothing for him to either kill me or to heal me or to help me. But why isn't the help coming? Job's view of suffering, it was really severely limited by how bad he felt and his inability to understand what purpose it served. I remember going to school and mentally pushing back against uh, certain assignments we were given, especially in maths, where I could not imagine it being practical to my future. Like, how am I going to use this someday? And because I don't understand how I'm going to use this someday, I think it's pretty stupid. As if I knew what the future would hold, right? Like, you know everything in high school. The truth was, I was complaining because I would have rather spent my time doing what I wanted to do rather than what my teacher and professor told me to do. I was just looking at that work and saying, well, this isn't practical. How will I use this? Why would I use this? When my teacher actually knew something, I didn't. Actually knew a lot that I didn't. Think about the movie Karate Kid where Daniel, he becomes embittered when Mr. Miyagi gives him many laborious and time-consuming chores instead of teaching him karate. He promised to teach him karate. Daniel would rather be having dates with beautiful girls and instead he's like waxing cars and sanding the floor and painting the fence. And the brilliance of Mr. Miyagi wasn't just finding a way to leverage free, cheap labor to finish his chores, but he used those basic tasks to make Daniel a champion by ingraining techniques by repetition. So it wasn't about waxing the cars or sanding the floors or painting the fence. Daniel's like, when do I learn how to punch? He hadn't even learned how to breathe yet. Miyagi's like, learn how to breathe, breathe, breathe. If Mr. Miyagi knew what he was doing all along, doesn't God know what he's doing? What he's going to accomplish? James 5.11, it says, the end intended by the Lord was not that Job needed to learn a particular lesson, but for all to see that God is very compassionate and merciful. That's what the Bible says God's purpose was in allowing this suffering. He had an end that was bigger than what Job could conceive of at the time. It really wasn't about Job at all, but God strengthened to endure and blessed him beginning to end. Job couldn't see it at that time, but may we see it and walk in light of it. Now we pick up in Job chapter 8 with Bildad the Shuhite. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you speak these things and the word of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God subvert judgment or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty... If you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. This is Bildad the Shuhite's first response to Job. Eliphaz and Job both speak three times, so far twice. Uh, he's, some believe that this Bildad was a descendant of Shua, who was one of the sons of Abraham by his wife Keturah after the passing of Sarah. 
Eliphaz accused, so previously Eliphaz who spoke to Job, he accused him of resenting or resisting the discipline of God and Bildad's like, you're questioning God's justice. They both agreed the problems that people face are a direct consequence of personal sin and repentance is the only path to recovery. That, that's both a theme throughout their statements to Job. And as we see, Bildad does not begin gently like Eliphaz did, does he? I mean, he's like, Job, when are you going to stop being a hot windbag? Like, your words are like hot wind. It's like bad breath that I just swat away. Whoa, what is this? Bildad asserts, God's just to punish sinners. God's always right. And then he has the audacity to presume that Job's children's, his children perished for their sin. And that action has a stamp of approval from Bildad because God always does what's right. Wow, it's unbelievably callous. It's unloving. It's an untrue thing to presume. Yes, it's true. All have sinned. God will judge sinners. But who is Bildad to say why God did what he did? How had Bildad survived to say such words if there was always such a clear cause and effect in every life of a person? Like, the soul that sins will surely die. Sure, but haven't we all sinned? Yes, and we're still here. So God is gracious and patient and merciful and compassionate. And take care, Bildad. If, and it follows that he, could, he felt justified to say this because such a thing had not happened to him. He was righteous. So he's speaking from this high position and looking down at Job upon his family and really accusing them of being great sinners a sin of which he had never stooped to himself. He really reminds me, Bildad does, of the self-righteous Pharisees who used their efforts to keep the law of Moses to justify themselves and to show themselves righteous. But attempts to keep the law, it cannot make a man righteous. The law can only condemn because by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law shuts every mouth. So the whole world becomes guilty before God. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Paul lays this out clearly. He says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Paul takes a, a sampling of quotes from the Old Testament to show that the law showed the sinfulness of man, that God's purpose for the law was not a mirror so that man could hold it up and admire how handsome or how beautiful he is, how good and upright he is, but to reveal that you're a bent, crooked sinner who needs a savior. That is the correct use of the law. It's not to show how righteous you are, it's to show that you are not righteous and that you failed in every way to measure up to the righteousness of God in yourself. 
based on Job's current suffering, Bildad assumed he must not have really repented because if he truly was pure and upright, God would now, like immediately, God would awake for him and bring visible, measurable prosperity. It's like if God does, if Job does what's right, God will reciprocate and he'll do it quickly so that you'll know you're on good terms with him. You'll be blessed beyond measure. Now that word prosperity, God's view and man's view of prosperity are very different things. The world sees prosperity as success in business or uh, wealth, health, freedom now. It does not take the spiritual or the eternal into account. Our lives and all that we have are blessings from the Lord. There are future blessings that we ought to value at least this much because what is coming, the rewards God has for us, those are eternal and enduring and will never fade away like the, like the riches that grow wings and fly away. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 10 through 12. You want to talk about blessing? This is what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul was able to rejoice and encourage others to rejoice while being unjustly imprisoned because his soul prospered by God's grace. Being imprisoned, being persecuted, you're like, that's not a blessing. That seems more a curse. But in view of what God views as prosperity, his soul prospered. He was blessed. Jesus says, rejoice in that because great is your reward. Job did not feel blessed as he suffered physically and the sincerity of his repentance was doubted. But he could rejoice of an enduring reward in heaven for holding fast to his integrity and his he is blameless because of faith in God. That's what God accounts as righteousness. Faith, having faith. Continuing in Job 8, verse 8. For inquire, please, of the former age and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? Bildad saying like, don't take my word for it, Job. This thought has not been developed by me, but the ancients who have gone before us, who, who've been around and know a lot more than us. We're wise to accept their wisdom. Bildad uses this logical fallacy of argument from authority. Just because a view is held, held forth by people from before, then it's, it's valid in our case and really cannot be criticized. Or... Uh, if you hold a view and you, you value the view because of the person holding it forth, not because of the, the merit of the argument, that is problematic. We're to, glue, to value conclusions based on the merit of the conclusion, not the merit of the one who says it because they have uh, degrees or like that, that is an appeal to authority when you're not taking it at its face value. And I like what Warren Wearsby said in the Enduring Word Commentary. To be sure, we can learn today from the past, but the past must be a rudder to guide us into the future and not an anchor to hold us back. The fact that said something was said years ago is no guarantee that it is right. The past contains as much folly as wisdom. 
Now, we can agree with the words of Warren Wiersbe because he's a Christian or a pastor who wrote over 150 books or had his own uh, radio program. We say, because he is influential, because he's famous, these words are true. Or we can say, these words are true because they agree with Scripture. We appeal to the authority of Scripture rather than the accomplishments of Warren Wearsby, like he makes a good point, not because of what he's done, but because what he says is aligned with the truth of God's word. That is the authority to whom we appeal, God and his word rightly divided by the Holy Spirit. Job 8, verse 11. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, and whose trust is a spider's web. He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun, and his branches spread out in his garden. His roots wrap around the rock heap and look for a place in the stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have not seen you. Bildad, he's used, uh, he's appealed to the ancients who have gone before that said, well, God is just and he punishes the wicked and he's just to do so. And now he's using examples from nature to support his point, his cause and effect principle. He speaks of papyrus and reeds that grow in water. In the river, how predictably, if the water's removed, they will quickly uh, turn brown and die. He says, these are examples of all those who forget God and those, how the hope of the hypocrite perishes. This isn't put forth as a warning to Job. This is saying, Job, that's you. You're somebody who's forgotten about God. You're someone who, it, whose hypocrisy has now been exposed. He accuses him. Job has been lumped in with all the people who forget God, who have forsaken the, the fountain of living waters. And he says, you're like a hypocrite, who, like a spider who trusts in his home that he has spun. Like a spider spins a web, it's anchored to catch its prey. And it, you've probably had this experience where you're walking along and you walk face first into the spider web and, and it's, it's all on your face now. And, and so, uh, or that, uh, like in our houses, you can have the spiders that make those little funnels and they, they live there and they feel well protected, but it just takes one sweep of the broom to get rid of them. And they're like, where are they? They're gone. And he's like, that's the hypocrite. God just sweeps them away. He, he trusted in that house to protect him, but his hypocrisy was known and exposed. The hypocrite will not stand. You placed your confidence in the wrong things, Job. You ought to put your confidence in God. Well, where had Job put his confidence? It was in God. <laughs> so th these are misguided accusations that Bildad's bringing against him. It could be true of some people, sure, but not of Job. And he used an example of a green plant thriving in a garden. It reminds me a bit of the parable of the sower, Jesus told, where there is some seed that falls on the rocky ground and it begins to grow. But because it doesn't have depth of root, it dies when the sun gets hot. When we pull a weed out of our turf, it leaves a bare spot of earth. But because this plant is in the rock heap, when it's pulled, there is no evidence it was ever there. 
And he's saying, Job, that's you. There's going to be no evidence that you're around because you put your hope in the wrong things. Not a very encouraging and uplifting thought, right? Especially as his friends are nodding in approval. Mm, yes, so wise, so true. And, but this is where Bildad is veering way off course concerning the nature of God and his goodness. Job 8 verse 19. Behold, this is the joy of his way. And out of the earth, others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. Bildad compares God to a gardener who delights to pull weeds so that the turf can fill in that spot where the weed once was. Like God wants to uproot the wicked so that the blameless can grow in their place. God is a just judge, but it is not his pleasure to destroy the wicked. Ezekiel 18, 23, it puts to rest any suggestion that God delights or takes pleasure in destroying sinners. It says in Ezekiel 18, 23, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? God does not desire the death of sinners, but that they would turn from their sin, they would repent and come to him in faith. The result of sin is the death of the body and the soul. God loves us and he sent Jesus Christ, our Savior, to deliver us, to pay, to, to pay with his own blood what the justice of the law demands, that he could atone for our sins, that by putting our faith in him, we could receive forgiveness, and eternal life. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him could be saved. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross, the, the shame, and the mockery, and the pain, and he provided that atonement. We are the evildoers that have been redeemed by his grace. We are the blind who now see. We were the ones dead in sins. We've been raised to life. And made spiritually fruitful. He hasn't cast us off forever. No, he's redeemed us. He's reconciled us to himself. He's changed our nature. He's made us new. Sarah laughed in disbelief when God said she would have a child in her old age. We ought to rejoice by faith in what Jesus has done for us. That we are now born again. We were spiritually barren, but now we can be fruitful. Bildad says, God will not cast away the blameless nor will he uphold the evildoers. Who among us is blameless? Who can justify themselves before God in our corrupt state? If God rejoices to cast away sinners like weeds that sprout in a garden, there would be cause to despair. If you're despairing over that statement, well, you have every right to because there's no hope for you if that's how God is. Bildad says God will not uphold the evildoers, but praise God, he delights to redeem them. He wants to reconcile them to himself. He wants to give them his heart, his mind, the mind of Christ. The children of Israel are a perfect example of this. They broke the covenant they made with God. They broke his law. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13, it says, Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God's people forsook him. They forgot him. Yet he did not cast them away for their sins. He sent Jesus with open arms to receive them into his kingdom if they would repent and trust him for salvation. Bildad said God would cause Job to laugh and rejoice if he was blameless, not understanding that our righteousness is the gift of God through faith in him. That's how we are made blameless. Not because we have done all the right things, but because what God has done and we've responded to it in faith and obedience. Now, in Isaiah 53, we have this great prophecy of the Messiah being sent, who's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, how he was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our sins. By his stripes, we are healed. He came to redeem lost sheep who were going astray. And Isaiah 54, the next chapter, begins with sing, O barren. And it's really neat because like, why would the barren sing? That would be sad if you were barren and you didn't want to be barren like Sarah was for a long period of her life. And it, sa- it goes on to say, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife. That just doesn't seem possible, does it? That the children of the desolate would be more than the one who is married. But that is what God says. We are those barren ones, O Christian, that God has caused to be spiritually fruitful by his grace because he delighted to save us while we were sinners. So yes, let's own that we're sinners, but also own that God is a redeemer and he is a forgiver and he is good. He is gracious and kind. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 54, starting in verse 4. Now God, through the prophet Isaiah, he personified Israel as a wife that God was going to be reconciled to her. And it's really fitting for Job and for us who feel hopeless. Isaiah 54, verse 4. Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer." The things that can provoke us to despair can and will be redeemed by our maker, the Lord, because he is a redeemer. That is what he does. It is who he is. You might feel forsaken. You might feel grieved in the spirit, rejected by God and forgotten like Job did. But God is faithful to gather us to himself because his mercy is great. With everlasting kindness, he will have mercy on us. Instead of casting Job aside, instead of casting Bildad aside, God was merciful to redeem. He is that good. So friends, look to Jesus. Be saved. 
Come to him in faith today. Place your faith in him. Trust in him because he is able to save and deliver and redeem. He does not delight to destroy, but he delights that we would turn to him. We would trust him and we would believe that his mercy is for us and we delight in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word that you are a redeemer. Thank you for Job's willingness to speak despite the rawness of his pains and the, the, the great suffering that he endured. Thank you that we can learn from his responses as well as from the things Bildad said. And I pray, Lord, that we would put Bildad's sentiment and accusations far from us, that we would not stand in judgment of others or think that you delight in destroying sinners, but to know you delight to redeem them. Lord, cause us to come to you, to trust in you, to fear you, to rest in your goodness, even when we are going through grief and suffering and pain that we can't understand and we can't see the good that will come out of it. Thank you that you are a redeemer and you are a restorer of our souls. Thank you for the rest that we have in you, that we need not be terrified. We need not be afraid of what we cannot control. But you, Lord, you are over all and you are worthy to be trusted. You're worthy to be feared and reverenced. And may we praise and bless your name now and forever because you are good. Thank you, Lord for your word, your wisdom, and that the good, that there is good yet to come. And, and the things that we endure now, Lord, they will not be remembered nor come into mind because you have remembered us in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.